The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films. But our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. encounters of the first kind, sighting of an unidentified flying object, close encounters of the second kind, physical evidence of a UFO, close encounters of the third kind, actual contact. Columbia Pictures, in association with EMI, presents Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The director is Steven Spielberg, whose most recent motion picture, Jaws, is already a legend. The producers are Julia Phillips and Michael Phillips of The Sting and Taxi Driver. Creating special effects is Douglas Trumbull, who in this film goes far beyond his achievements in 2001 A Space Odyssey. For the music, there was only one choice. 11-time Academy Award nominee, John Williams, composer of the scores for Jaws and Star Wars. The technical advisor is the world's foremost authority on unidentified flying objects, Dr. J. Allen Hynek of Northwestern University. Heading the cast is Richard Dreyfuss, who has shown his rare talent in such diverse films as American Graffiti, The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz, and Jaws. And making his American debut as an actor is the great French director, Francois Truffaut, winner of the 1974 Academy Award. A close encounter could happen to anyone. It could happen to you. It does happen to Roy Neary. An average working man Neary finds his life, his very world, changed. Who are you people? We have very little time, Mr. Neary. We need answers from you. They're honest, direct, and to the point. Who are you have people? You have you recently had a close encounter? I want to speak to someone in charge. Une rencontre plutôt inhabituelle. I want to lodge a complaint. A close encounter with something very unusual. What the hell is going on around here? Who the hell are you people? The title of the picture, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, refers to an intriguing possibility. Well, a close encounter of the first kind is one is close, but nothing really happens. A close encounter of the first kind is visible contact with a UFO. Forget the shape and forget how fast it's going. It's something that you just can't explain. Close encounters of the second kind are those which leave a physical trace. Holes in the ground, fern rings, broken tree branches, telephone lines down, animals disturbed, the stopping of car engines. Then the close encounters of the third kind are the most interesting of all. Close encounter of the third kind is really when you meet them. encounters of the third kind. The experience of an ordinary man shared by people from all over the world, irresistibly drawn by a compulsion they don't understand. To win
witness the most dramatic event in the history of the human race. And what you will see has never been seen before. Indiana town and leads to one inescapable conclusion. Hi guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I am your host Jimbo, once again joined by my colleague Kyle, right here as always. Kyle, right here as always. He's uh, Close Encounters of the Sixth Kind. <laughs> That's... That's somehow is that somehow a fat joke? I think it is. I think it is. I well, I was going to say close encounters with a fat kind, but I didn't think you would take two kind of orbits around the third kind, or the third kind orbits around him. As I, th- it were. I was trying to be the sl- gravitational I to, pull. I tried to slide it in there and see if you would notice. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure it out. Like I think, yeah, yeah. I think I can somehow make that a fat joke. Yeah. So, in case you haven't realized, today we are talking about uh, the great sci-fi classic, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, this episode 95. Technically, it's like 183, but who's counting? Uh, but Kyle, before we get started, I got a little question for you. I am ready for any question you have. Of all the sci-fi slash uh, UFO alien movies, where do you rank Close Encounters uh, of the Third Kind aliens and compared to like E.T.? Uh, oh, you mean specifically the alien the, design? Just the alien design in this movie. Besides the one that probably abducted you and probed you last week. You know, we've all been there. Um, <laughs> it was consensual. Um, <laughs> he signed a waiver. <laughs> um, in terms of alien design, I think it's... It's it's like Coca-Cola in a way. And I want to say like it's, like it's kind of the de facto standard. It's the gray bodies... Of what you associate with films in the past, so it's it's kind of the default alien in a lot of ways. So that's I think it's like it's kind of up there in the top ten for me, probably. Like it is the same kind of like it is the is the gray body humanoid figure. I'm going to go on a limb so you can't name me ten alien movies. Yeah. Go. Okay. Alien, Fire in the Sky, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, um, Predator, uh, Aliens, um, <laughs> Echo. <laughs> Alien versus Predator, <laughs> Alien versus Predator Covenant. So you, uh, I just think no, but, but I'm, what I, I mean, specifically the fifth element. There are a lot of, what, a lot of those aliens. What I'm specifically getting at is Star Trek. When when, when, Star Trek when the door falls down on the spaceship, you know, mm-hmm. and you see that one alien drop down, almost looks like a spider, mm-hmm. you know, and then it does that weird thing where it just comes up and stands on two feet. I thought yeah. that was really well done in this movie. So I think the special effects for that worked really great for this movie. Yeah, I agree. And this definitely has a, a lot more of a. This is a one of the most hopeful looks of a first encounter, I think. But this is I a think. weird movie. Yes, it is very odd in many respects. I no. mean, Kyle was over here building a devil's mountain over here in the corner of my recording studio. As I do every week. <laughs> <laughs> I forget the name of it. Devil's the devil's what's it called? The devil's. I know oh, it's in here. Gosh, you it's in my to, notes. I haven't you got, got that part. Screen on me in the moment. Yeah, no. Now I don't know if you if devil's I, tower. I, the devil's yeah, tower. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's what it's yes. called. But uh, yeah, this was my first time sitting down watching this movie, so it was really weird. Especially half the movie. I will get to it. I will talk about yeah, it later. You, you really but, don't know where it's going. You know, but. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you my thoughts at the end. So, Kyle, let's go ahead and kick off Close Encounters of the Third Kind. All right. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, released in 1977 on November 15th. I was exactly, like, 28 days old or something 28 like days old. Cool. cool, cool, cool. <laughs> so you were in there, there in the theater. I was you, there you, for you, it. You saw it all. You were at Woodstock. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Everything before I was born is the same time. <laughs> Everything I, happened. I was in World War II. While exactly. I had exactly. Yeah, it might as well be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, Close Encounters of Their Kind was directed by the legendary Steven Spielberg, also written by Steven Spielberg. Um, producers were Julia Phillips and Michael Phillips. Composer was the legendary John Williams. Cinematographer was Vilmos um, Z, um, Z. Sigmund. And editor was Michael Kahn. Whew, for the budget, we have a huge budget of $20 million for the time. That would be about $92.8 million to today. And gross take-home uh, for the opening weekend was $1.7 million, which would be equivalent to about $7.9 million today. 
And gross in just U.S. and Canada for the length of the film run was $135 million, which would be closely equivalent to about $827 million of today, so big money right there. And then gross worldwide, a whopping $306 million in 1977, which would be the equivalent of $1.4 billion today. With B, a B. With a B. The big old B billion. That's, that's the money they really want. Um, <laughs> that's about... Um, that's more than like 15 times the original cost, basically, and just like gross production value. So, like, they made their money back in a whole lot, then some. Let's see here. So, other fun facts here. The other stuff we cover on the line. Let me pull it up here. I don't have it organized just yet. Oh my gosh. So, I get past all the awards, but I'll cover that section just a bit here. We have a runtime of 133 minutes for the special edition, 135 minutes for the theatrical original, and 138 minutes for the director's cut. Which is what I watched. We watched the director's cut for this recording, yes. For the sound mix, we have a 70mm 6-track mm prints and Dolby 35mm prints. Color info, this is a color film by Metro Color Industries. Um, aspect ratio, this is 2.2 by 1 on 70mm prints, and also 2.39 by 1 for, I believe, the um, original theatrical release. For the cameras used in this production, we have the Panavision 65 HR camera for the special effects scene. For the special effects scenes and the Panavision PSR R200, the Panavision C-Series and super high-speed lenses, and Panavision Panaflex, and the Panavision C-Series and super high-speed lenses are just set again. IMDb organizes these in kind of interesting ways sometimes. So I'm, like, I'm just saying the same thing again. <laughs> um, for the uh, let's see, your film length, we have a 1,000 meters um, flat. Process, they use the um, Digital intermedi Intermediate 4K for the 2017 remaster, just released, uh, what, five years ago now. And for Panavision, they had an anamorphic lens for the Super Panavision 70mm special effects. Let's see here. And going forward, what are the, some of the other fun facts? Filming dates. This was filmed between May 16th, 1976 to May 16th, 1977. So a full year of mm. production time for filming and After Effects, I'm sure, and all that other kind of stuff. So full year production, which is unusual for the time. Let's see here. Then moving on, we're going to go to the awards. Ba -ba 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 -ba. It's a really good sound effect I got there. <laughs> we miss you, Terrence. <laughs> Let's see here. And the awards. We, um, first year, first award we have written down here is the International Film Music Critics Award, where it won the best re-release of a previously existing score. By no means the first or the last. And we have in 2017, it was added to the National Film Registry. In 2010, it won the Online Film and Television Association Award for Best Motion Picture. Let's see here. And on 1979, it got the Golden Screen Award in Germany. for the, in one, It won the Golden Screen Award. In 1979, it won a Grammy for Best Album of the Original Score Written for a Motion Picture or Television Special. Of course, awarded to the legendary John Williams. For the Academy Awards, it won the Oscar for Best Special Achievement Award. Um, I believe that's for the sound effects editing specifically. It also won Best Cinematography, rewarded to Vilmos Zygmunt. Moving on forward, we have, let's see here, we also have the Academy of Science Fiction and Fantasy and Horror Films Rewards in 1978, where it won Best Music, rewarded to John Millions, of course, and Best Director, rewarded to Steven Spielberg. Then we have the David D. Donatello Awards, where it won Best Foreign Film in 1978. Then we have the Best Motion, the Motion Picture Sound Editors in the U.S. of A. in 1979, where it won a Golden Reel Award. And then finally, we have the National Board Review in 1977, where it won the Best Special Citation for Special Effects and the MBR Award for the Top 10 Films of the Year. And that is the awards for the Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Ooh, oh, I'm going to move on to the cast now. My favorite part. <laughs> Ooh, ba -da -da. Take a breath, Kyle. Take, Take a breath. breath. Take a breath. i got to breathe. There's a whole lot of film here. It's great stuff. We, of course, have Richard Dreyfuss playing Rory Neary. Um, Richard Dreyfuss, of course, is best known for such roles such as in the role in the movie Jaws in 1975. What about Bob in 1991? <laughs> Underrated movie. film. That's Bill Murray. Excellent film. Um, Stand By Me in 1986. American Graffiti in 1973. Always in 1989. And The Goodbye Girl in 1977. Then we have Francis Fruffett plays Claude uh, Lacombe. Um, he was in such films as Day for Night in 1973, The 400 Blows in 1959, and Stolen Kisses in 1968. Then we have Melinda Dillon playing Gillian Guler. 
She was in such films as Harry and the Hendersons in 1987, oh, too. Absence of Malice in 1981, Magnolia in 1999, and The Prince of Tides in 1991. Then we have Cary Gruffy playing Barry Guler. Um, there were such films as Everything Happens to Me in 1980, Poison Ivy in 1985, Mutant in 1984, and Cross Creek in 1983. Then we have Terry Garr playing Ronnie Neary. Um, there were such films as just Young Frankenstein in 1974, Mr. Mom in 1983, Tootsie in 1982, and Oh God in 1977. There's two of my favorite movies around that list, Young Frankenstein and Mr. Mom. You can't go wrong with that. Yeah, I, I love Young Frankenstein. I haven't seen Mr. Mom himself. I know. Yeah. That's why it's on the list. Yeah. Coming up soon. Yeah, someday. We'll get we'll get around to it. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll cover every movie in existence someday. Don't worry. <laughs> um, especially your favorite movie, guys. Right around the corner. Bob Babylon <laughs> plays David Laffin. There were such films such as Godsford Park in 2001, Moonrise Kingdom in 2012, Parents in 1989, and The Monuments Men in 2014. Next up, we have Justin Dreyfus playing Toby Neary. Um, this is their only film. Uh, oh, oh, this it was this film and The Munchies in 1987. There we go. Had the Munchies. Right. The Munchies. <laughs> you can imagine what that might have been about <laughs> if you're over 30. Let's see if you can find place again. Now, Justin Dreyfus also, of course, related to Richard Dreyfus. So I'm sure it was a favorable favor. Get some family in there. Then we have a uh, Patrick McNara playing the project leader of the uh, the end scenes, kind of like Presley. Um, they were in such films as The Fist Power. Oh, uh, yes, it is The Fist Power in 1990, Warning Sign in 1985, Gross Anatomy in 1989, and The Fury in 1978. Then we have Lance Henderson playing Robert. Um, Robert and the Alien. Oh, yeah, playing Robert, just Robert. Um, he was in such films such as Aliens in 1986, The Terminator in 1984, Hard Target in 1993, Pumpkinhead in 1988, oh, and Near Dark in 1987. Then lastly, we have Warren G. Um, Kimberling playing Wild Bill. Regulators! Regulators! Mount up! <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think the song, not the movie. I don't think it's the same guy. <laughs> I don't think it is. Um, but the lawyer in 1970, hit in 1973, eat my dust in 1976. I just had to put some finesse on there. And brother John in 1971, <laughs> eat my dust, <laughs> my dust, roll tide. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, Jimbo, take All it right, from Kyle. Me. Before we dive in any more into this movie, I want you to give me, without looking at the notes, oh gosh, a I synopsis of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh. So, act like I have never seen this movie before. How are you going to describe it to me that makes me want to go it's see like it? Like a guy. I want man. you to read it. Like I want you to give it to me. Like, like I'm a, trying to a, sell it to you. Like a trailer for like the movie. A trailer. <laughs> it was a dark. Time. Richard Dreyfuss is the third kind. <laughs> Uh, uh, and you know it's, it's it's a movie about an alien sighting and discovering the war and and um, a discovery and trying to find the truth that's out there. I don't know. It's it's if, <laughs> I can't do a summary of this film. It's about a man kind of like you know uh, like um, abandoning his whole life to go on a new adventure to discover the alien contact which he had at the beginning of the film and discovering trying trying to find the truth that's out there and abandoning his whole life to go. Um, find the find out everything right, and so, it's not just him. There's several people in this. Yeah, film it's, that it's, are, it's it's now, now before we get started, there, there's one thing I want to say about this film that I, I asked Kyle. I said, Kyle, I said, there's this guy who's married to Terry Gar. Uh, I can't think of his name. It's what's a uh, drive? Is it drive Jake? Justin Dreyfus? Uh, no, no, this one. Oh, Roy. Roy. Yeah, Roy. Yeah. I think he's married to Terry Gar in this movie. Yes, and they have two kids. Mm-hmm. And they're going through some struggles, you can tell. They're arguing, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but then there's this other lady that has this little boy. And the night that they see the UFOs, each has their different thing. And the little kid gets abducted. But him and her go, they both are going separate ways. Then they end up meeting up together. And then they end up sharing a kiss in this movie. And I'm like, bro, you're still married. This is like, Yeah, you still have a whole family. Yeah, and I, I, I was to. like... Yeah, and then you can kind of see where like um, craziness, paranormal, sitting in because you know he's at home like throwing implants through the window, you know, dirt and all this. He's like, you'll see, you'll see, and he builds this devil's tower like in his living room. Yeah, it's like a he doesn't know what it is. He just mm-hmm. keeps seeing this shape. 
<laughs> and he sees it on TV, and she sees it on TV, and they end up going to... This is where, obviously, the UFOs are uh, interacting yeah. with humans. So I just wanted to throw it, that out yeah, there. Yeah, the really, it's, like, it's a story of like a guy having his own cultural awakening, or is like what the comedy net referred to now is like a midlife crisis almost. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I need to abandon my whole family and go be out and wild and explore this whole new world right now because I can't stay in this um, domestic life where... I'm with my regular family, and I feel miserable in there. Like, it's a story about a guy escaping. And more familiar, like, this was written before Steven Spielberg himself had a family and understood those kind of responsibilities that he needed to feel. So, like, I don't think uh, I don't think it's a realistic character in that way. Because well, I and, I do, like, and I did read later that if, I forget which, uh, it wasn't Spielberg, I think it was the other guy that, uh, one of the guys that directed or uh, produced it. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, no, produced it or something. He said that if he had to do it all over again... I think it was him, Spielberg him with that. his family mm-hmm. doing the way he did. He wouldn't have put that in the movie because yeah. yeah. So let's go ahead and start talking a little bit about this movie, uh, some of the scenes in it. So during the neary dinner scene, just before Roy piles the mashed potatoes, remember when he puts yeah. the mashed potatoes on his plate? Little girl Sylvia says, "There's a dead fly in my potatoes." This was unscripted. Almost caused <laughs> the rest of the cast to laugh. The scene was kept as is. That's great. That's great. The, the things <laughs> the kids say, man. Even exactly. while we were rolling, right on there. Oh, yeah, God. dead fly. Uh, protein. <laughs> Eat up. <laughs> you want another helping? Uh, Carrie Guffey's performances were so good that they only had to do one or two takes of each shot he was in. He became known as One Take Carrie on the set, and director Steven Spielberg had a t-shirt printed up for him with a phrase written on it. That's awesome. <laughs> what a compliment. What a compliment. Steven Way to go, my, Barry. You're, the, you're my favorite actor right now. <laughs> uh, the iconic five-note melody, which, um, to communicate with the UFOs of this, they're getting these same, like, five notes, like, beep, 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 beep. Mm. And they end up hooking up like a whole synthesizer <laughs> and lights. And all yeah, to giant synthesizer with, with lights and all that It is definitely... <laughs> Is definitely cheesy. It is definitely some seventies nonsense <laughs> that I really appreciate. <laughs> it's almost like playing Simon Says with <laughs> a giant Simon ding, Says. Ding, ding. The aliens will understand this yeah. if you just repeat the message. And back they just to do them, it the fine. same notes over exactly. and over. And they're like, "What? What are we saying? We don't know. We have no idea." <laughs> Hopefully, hello. <laughs> um, the iconic five note melody was a chance arrangement that both composer John Williams and director Steven Spielberg happened to like out of hundreds of different permutations. The tone was later used in Moonraker in 1979 and again in the queue line in Star Tours in 1987. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Stanley Kubrick was so impressed by Cary Guffrey's performance that he wanted him to play Danny Torrance in The Shining. However, Kubrick didn't get him uh, for the role because of scheduling conflicts, so poor thing. So all so the cast we got, we got Jack Danny, Nicholson in there. So. Well, they <laughs> cast Danny Lloyd. No, the, the little boy. Oh, so the they, boy. So they cast oh, sorry, Danny yeah. Lloyd instead, yeah. Uh, the film was partly inspired by an, an experience from Steven Spielberg's childhood when, without advance warning, his parents rushed the children into their car one night, drove to an area where many others were gathered, and watched a spectacular meteor shower. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, the words that the crowd in India chants are, ay ay, ray, ay which I hope I say that right, but it uh, means he has come in Hindi. Uh, the John Williams score was created before the film was even edited. Steven Spielberg edited the film to the match the music, a reverse of what is usually done in the film's scoring process. Both Spielberg and Williams felt that it ultimately gave the film a lyrical feel. I agree. I agree with that entirely. Yeah, I think that's a great... Like They, they do... I mean, the film isn't like a musical or sense where it feels like it's striking musical notes in each scene to scene, but the music, the parts where it does have that as musical notes, it's very organic in a way that I, I really appreciate. It feels natural, which, so, yeah, it's very uh, good. Steven Spielberg has stated that nothing in his life has been more difficult than editing the final 35 minutes of this film. I can definitely see why. It's definitely challenging to kind of... It, in, all, in all honesty, uh, the, the director's cut we, cut we watched, it was a pretty boring movie until probably the last 35 minutes. You had to pay closer. You're yeah. like, what is going on here? Because it, it gets a little out there. Because you have no idea what it's leading to, and then you have to decide at the end what it's actually leading to. And also at that point, when you think about like the only real parallels to filming of how you kind of like address those scenes, it also has to deal with like the ideas of religiosity at that point, like how you almost like want to film it in like a biblical highlight of like ascending to heaven and all those kind of ideas. So like you have to like you have to think of like these kind of bigger ideas and trying to film that. And that's very difficult for any filmmaker or writer because then you have to like get ideas of like spirituality and also ascension or like how do you want to like push this as like an ascent to godhood at that point. Right. That's how aliens are treated a lot in films of just like they're so higher advanced than us that obviously we just treat them like a god in that case. So it's hard to do. Uh, the situation on U.S. Navy Flight 19 from which the airplanes that dis- appear in the Mexican desert came 
Disappeared off of Fort Lauderdale, Florida in December 1945. No trace has ever been found of the Lost Flight 19, which left the Naval Air Station near there in 1945. I believe that's a to-this-day thing, too. I'm sure they never actually found anything Is that the ones that were supposedly uh, lost in the Bermuda Triangle? I I believe believe that's what they're referring to. I think so. Uh, Douglas Trumbull, uh, Trumbull achieved the dramatic cloud effects by filling a tank full of half salt water with lighter lighter fresh water on top, then injecting paint into the top layer. The paint billowed through the fresh water, but flattened out at the top of the heavier salt water, creating the effect we see on screen. Which is really cool how those it's, thoughts came rolling in when the big UFOs were coming. It's always, it's always amazing here the trickery they kind of did to get practical effects working like that. Before now, everything is just CGI. So it's just, right. Yeah. Uh, for the scene in which Barry says, Toys! As he looks out the window and spots the UFOs, Steven Spielberg actually pulled out a toy car behind the camera to cause Barry's reaction. <laughs> fair, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, it's like, you know, best way to get a kid is just give him that genuine reaction, you know. All right, you know. Kyle. This is something you would do, and I think it's funny. All right, let's hear it. Frank, he ate a pie? Frank Did he eat a cake? Francois. Francois. Truffaut's English Frank-Qua. was not strong. To get through some of his scenes, he stuck pieces of paper with his lines on them on various objects where he could read them and the camera would not pick them up. In one case, as he argues face-to-face with an army officer who has his back to the camera, he is reading his lines car, uh, lines off a card pinned to the man's chest. He had shown the sub trick to an actress who was having trouble with her lines in Day for Night, 1973, in which he played the director of the movie within the movie. <laughs> the worst part is I'd probably be reading off the I'll read him off his chest and then getting the words wrong. I would say family family again. <laughs> <laughs> That's an inside joke. That's hilarious. Uh this film is shown every night at the Devil's Tower KOA campground, thereby making it one of the most screened movies ever. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, one of the things I, I, the Devil's Tower itself is like an insane place to look at. Have I don't you mean, been? No, I've not actually been there, but I've seen pictures of like all around. Like that—that that is like a sheer cliff all the way up there. I've seen pictures of all that kind of stuff there, and the idea of putting a military base on top just sounds insane to uh-huh. me because everything has to be airlifted up there. You don't just like build a ladder. You just well, that's not true because they they walked up there. <laughs> the movie did it so it's fine right. uh, according to Melinda Dillon because it was done without rehearsal the scene in the kitchen with all the objects flying around was truly scary and her alarm reactions were often quite real and spontaneous as she tried to protect herself and Carrie Guffrey so they never they just yeah. here stuff's gonna be flying at you yeah. good luck I had to, to look at it's, it's too much for this podcast but there was a story actually of a man who actually um, he took a, a parachute dive onto the top of the devil's tower and he nearly died up there because no one could get him down <laughs> His his rope got shredded coming on the way down, and so he was basically trapped up there. They sent up like dozens of experienced climbers to try and get up there, and no one could get up to put a rope down to bring him down or anything like that. Too, he broke his one leg, so they just said like just just. At one point, he had to ask like just send me a bottle of vodka or like Jack Daniels down here so I can just die comfortably because he gave up all hope. Uh, eventually, they got him down, but it was a huge moment. <laughs> history um, Kyle yeah. you're a big science fiction guy do you know who Ray Bradbury was yeah he's a writer uh, what yeah. did he write uh, I don't know the right exact books Fahrenheit oh, Fahrenheit 451 that's a different filmmaker that's, that's, what's yeah. that guy's name again uh, we don't the talk Fahrenheit. about that guy <laughs> Fair Michael, Michael Moore, Michael Moore, right? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Uh, so, but he Ray Bradbury <laughs> declared this the greatest science fiction film ever made. Ooh, that's quite a quite high praise from Ray Bradbury. That's yeah, incredible. yeah. Um, because one of the first film, uh, this is actually one of the first films to actually ever have a special edition director's cut made when Steven Spielberg wanted to improve his original vision. So. Uh, tuba player Jim Self is the musical voice of the mothership in the climatic scene when the big ship comes down on the Devil's Tower. Spielberg and Williams uh, chose the tuba uh, as the voice of the mothership because of the difficulty of playing the instrument and added a human characteristic to the aliens. Makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Uh, um, yeah. Stephen did a lot of work to make sure that these aliens didn't feel threatening in the film. Which I yeah, think. that's that was something else I noticed. It was like. They come out and they're all like, oh, let's hug. Yeah, let's hug. He has a very hopeful and generous look at like how a, how an actual alien encounter would go. You know, other films definitely gone the right. other far and, and away. Yeah. And which is really weird because all these people that have been missing, um, they have been gone. Yeah. You know, they all have the list. They're checking them off like, hey, where you been? Check, check. You know, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, for the scene where Richard Dreyfus appears to go weightless in his truck in his first encounter with flying saucers, his truck was put on a turntable and rotated 360 degrees. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> That's how you do it, yeah. Uh, nice. Melinda I think, like, Dillon, Christopher Nolan does that nowadays. <laughs> right. Melinda Dillon uh, was suffering from a broken big toe when location 
Shooting began in May 1976 at Devil's Tower. Afraid she might be replaced, Dylan toughed it out during the filming of scenes in which she, Richard Dreyfuss, and Joseph Summer make a run for the mountain. So she was doing all that with a broken toe. Ooh, ow. No fun at all. No fun at all. Uh, real tr- air traffic controllers were used in the opening sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the lights go out in the Neary house during the blackout, the miniature lakes on Roy's model trains layout continued to glow in the dark. This was supposed to have been the payoff of an er- uh, earlier conversation cut fr- that was cut from the film in which Roy's son Toby accused his father of stealing his luminous paint, which Roy insisted was not true. <laughs> he really liked his models. Yeah. That train. <laughs> he, he, he went all out. I appreciate it. You Something know. else that was really cool about this movie is actually set in Indiana. The mm-hmm. the main character's house. Yeah, they, yeah they do. Yeah, yeah, is, so. he, he's a Hoosier. Yeah. He's one of us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we own Richard Dreyfuss now. That's, how, that's the rules. That's the rules. I don't uh, care what Richard Dreyfuss is actually found. I we own, own my now. royalties. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, J. Allen Hynek was a famous ufologist and the creator of div- the diverse kinds of contact with extraterrestrial life has explained in his book, The UFO Experience, a Scientific Study in 1972. The first kind is a sighting of any one or more UFOs. The second kind is observation of physical evidence of extraterrestrial visitation. The third kind is contact uh, with one or more extraterrestrials. Uh, Heineck made a cameo at the end of the movie uh, credited as the smoking pipe at landing site. <laughs> <laughs> okay, smoking pipe at landing site. Uh, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it's such a... Yeah. Uh, I guess it could have took more place in the 60s, something like that, but this is a cold cultural movement, the idea of alien abductions or alien like UFO sightings for such a long time. And recently we've gone through like a similar kind of like, not cultural movement, but a similar thing like the um, the UA, um, uh, what was it, UA, UAPs, Unknown Aerial Phenomena now, with their own like unknown sites that we thought like, are these aliens or not? But we know they exist in military records. So it's kind of interesting to see like, um, like, like back then it feels like everyone was like, there were some people that were really like um, worrisome about the idea of like aliens invading, but also like Steven Spielberg, I think, was like really excited about the idea of someday meeting aliens. He really wanted that to happen, and there were a whole lot of people in this in that generation that wanted that whole new beginning of like starting a whole new cultural revolution by, by meeting aliens. I so said like, oh, this is how the whole universe works, and all kind of stuff too. Yeah. And this one definitely airs on that side of the world, I think. So fun stuff. Stuntman Craig R. Baxley was injured during the sequence where the police cars are chasing the UFOs on a mountain road. This stunt called for him to skid around a turn, go through a fence, and over an embankment. But Baxley was traveling too fast, and he overshot the area where he was supposed to land. His car landed too hard, and even though he was wearing a helmet, he received head injuries. He was hospitalized for several days. Oh, wow. I, 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 I assumed that was down to miniatures. I didn't think it was a real... Wow. It's, that's weird. Like, even when you see the real thing, you think it's a miniature sometimes. Yeah. But I didn't think that was a, a real stunt, but no, that's a real stunt, and they hurt him. <laughs> Sad deal. Uh, Steven Spielberg knew only vaguely what the mothership would look like when he was filming the live action scenes. He decided it would be big, hulking, and very dark. While filming in India months later, he drove past a giant oil refinery every day and was inspired by the many lights and pipes and outcroppings on the rig to change the look of the spaceship. Yeah. I want to say this is the film, too, that actually, like, um, brought what they call it the Spielberg stare now, where, like, you have your mouth open and your eyes are just, yeah, fully on up, like, the look of awe on your face. I think it was, like, this is the first one to really have that, where just, like, the... Kind of like the Nazi in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. And melt face melts. (laughs) Yeah, just that look of just complete awe and astonishment, and that's where they got that. Um, That was the direction they gave, you know, to, like, the reaction the mothership in this film, even though they hadn't finalized the design for it, just... Just open your mouth and look dumb. <laughs> oh, so like you do every time we record this podcast. The story of my life. Uh, <laughs> open your mouth and look dumb is the my autobiography. You can buy now on Amazon. <laughs> uh, one day shipping. Uh, uh, the ship found in the Gobi Desert, the Cotopaxi, is an actual tramp uh, steamer that went down in the Bermuda Triangle in December 1925. 1925. Oh, so that wow. was pretty cool when they found it in the Gobi Desert. Remember? Yeah, yeah. Going through actual historical data, like, oh yeah, let's actually bring the stuff at the live or something like that. Um, and I think, and, I, and if it's in the notes somewhere, I do believe that's the scene where they do the forced perspective, where it's just a miniature or something, but the way that they shot it looked like it was huge. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. I should have um, just brought Amelia Earhart in just for the last <laughs> second. Just I was here the whole time. I'm fine. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. <laughs> uh, Nixon there? Like, why is Nixon? He was. I'm not a crook. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a crook. And then Elvis shows up. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Just all those celebrities that just like what? Elvis has <laughs> left the planet. Every celebrity that confuses you, secretly an alien. <laughs> Michael Jackson's there. Wow. 
Real early. <laughs> wow. Too soon. Uh, most of the UFO miniatures were filmed in dark, smoke-filled rooms to give them a halo effect, uh, so the beams of light em- emanating from them would be more prominent. So Cool. Cool stuff. Definitely gives them that more alien The feel last too. scene to be filmed was the opening scene in the Sonara Desert. Mm-hmm. The, large... the Sonara Desert? What? That's what it says. Let me see that. I Sonora. got Sonora Desert. Not Sonora. the Sahara. The oh, Sonora. oh, okay. Sonora. Okay, okay. Making sure you didn't just have a stroke or something. Kyle, <laughs> look up Sonora Desert and tell me where it's at. I'm going to see one. Okay. Okay. I got I got so I, I am you know. on the task, Jimbo. Don't worry. You worry. I got this. It is possible to see an upside-down R2-D2 from Star Wars in uh, part of the large spacecraft that flies over the Devil Towers. The SFX people needed uh, more detail, and so supposedly there are many more items, such as Shark from Jaws, uh, R2-D2 is visible as Jillian sees the um, mothership up close from her hiding place in the rocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a desert in Arizona. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay. I'll be here I'll all week. I'll validate you. Yes, you're welcome, Elvis Presley. <laughs> alien deductee. Possibly alien himself. The large, long-armed alien character who came to be known as Puck was a puppet created by Marion marionette maker Bob Baker, not to be accused with My Bob Baker. Barker. Of the Price is Right fame, with an upper torso and head and articulating features for close-ups by Carl Rambaldi, who had created the ape's face in the remake of King Kong in 1976. Eight people operated the mechanisms to control the puppet, and Steven Spielberg was so pleased with it, according to Rambaldi, he often played with it. It should have been like the Mogwais from Gremlins. Bright light, bright light. And the good. scene where Ronnie cuts out a newspaper article about the UFO sightings the night after Roy's first glimpse of the UFO, an article on Star Wars 1977 appears on the other side of the UFO article. Uh, Steven Spielberg edited the film secretly, not at the studio, but in a rented apartment in Marina Del Rey under guard. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> like, yeah. like he's doing his own drug deal back in the Can you imagine if he's doing it by himself, though? That that was a lot of work. That sounds like some insanity that I could see him doing, especially in his younger years, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Melinda Dillon, who earned her first, uh, or sorry, who earned an Oscar nomination for her performance, was not cast until the weekend before she was due to begin filming. Okay. Oops. Um, uh, 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 going back to the previous fact again, like about working in the hotel room, I think this film is also... The idea about Steven Spielberg like writing a story about his own obsession in life. Like, he's obsessed about making the perfect film, and he's writing a character who's obsessed about finding the truth about aliens and finding the truth in the world. Like, for him, like, Spielberg, filmmaking is his truth. So, like, him working nonstop in the back of a hotel room under guard sounds like exactly something he would do back in the day. <laughs> Crazy man. Uh, one early concept for interpreting the aliens included an orangutan on roller skates. <laughs> The idol did skates. not work because the orangutan became very frightened the second its roller skates touched the ground and it kept grabbing onto the arms of its caretaker. It's cruel, but I want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awful. That's Do it again. <laughs> uh, money, a model miniature was used for some of the shots in the climatic scene. At least part of the illumination coming out of the ship was created by a set of Christmas lights strung up on the back of a metal plate behind little tiny alien figures creating the silhouetted look we see. This was composited into a shot with real life actors. The nine foot diameter model of the mothership that was used in the final sequences was kept locked up in Steven Spielberg's garage to help prevent pictures of it from appearing in the media before the release of the film. Taking up nine feet of his garage. Nine feet of the garage. mothership. It's the whole garage. You just open the garage and like, this is the mothership. Don't Roy Santobi was played by Justin Dreyfus, who is the real-life nephew of Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus. There so. we go. Yeah, I got that back in there. I knew he was really somehow, but I forgot the actual relation. Yeah, Richard Dreyfus's father was an extra in the film and spent six months on location. However, the scenes in which he appeared never made the final cut. You shot up in the you shot up in the cast list though, so I made sure to include him. Oh, that's surprising. I wonder if he's in one of the special or, or director's editions, possibly. I wonder if like not the final cut, the theatrical cut, but maybe he was in the special or director's cut, possibly. I don't know. They got those extra minutes. A highly detailed miniature in the filming technique, the force perspective we got here is what was the, the ocean freighter that was left stranded in the Gobi Desert. So there's. Mm-hmm. Um, the mechanical monkey scene clinging the symbols in Barry's room was actually meant as a homage to a homage, homage to a scene featuring the same toy in Rebel Without a Cause in 1955, Ooh. which, oddly enough, we will be covering in I the think, two near weeks future. Now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, according to the book Real Gags by Bill Givens, Grateful Dead singer Jerry Garcia was an extra during the scenes in India, and he can be seen in a crowd shot. Oh, cool. That's really neat. Steven Spielberg had approached Steve McQueen, Dustin Hoffman, and Gene Hagman for the role of Roy Neary. 
Jack Nicholson was also considered. McQueen turned down the role because he said he wasn't able to cry on film. <laughs> he just, was the man's man. Which covers, uh, cry. Yeah. I refuse. I've never cried in my life, even as a baby. <laughs> I won't cry at my own funeral. After visiting the set of this movie, George Lucas was here. We go. This is this is probably the most interesting fact of this entire thing, and you're gonna it's gonna blow your mind. At really the set of this movie, George Lucas was sure Close Encounters of the Third Kind would outperform the yet-to-be-released Star Wars at the box office. So, him and Spielberg being friends, because Spielberg disagreed, it felt Star Wars would be the bigger hit. And the idea of a compensation case... Uh, uh, the bet, the bet, yes. Yeah, yes, and the idea of getting a compensation case to Star Wars were a box office bomb. Lucas proposed a gentleman's pact as they were close friends from the university, trading... Two and a half percent of the profit of each of the movies of each other's movies. Spielberg accepted the deal, and Lucas still receives two and a half percent of the profits from this movie. As Spielberg receives the same from Star Wars. That's incredible. one of these things are not like the other. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure. But they're like they both have how, a lifetime of being extremely. Important. But how much money, more money, do you think uh, Spielberg has made from Star Wars? God. The two and a half percent from Star Wars over the two and a half that Lucas took for close accounts. I, I, I bet it's enough that I could live off two percent off that. <laughs> I'm going to say it's probably that much. <laughs> I'm going to say it's point two percent. Yeah, I'm going to say yeah, point two percent. Yeah, enough for generational wealth to be. Uh, in a Rolling Stone <laughs> magazine interview uh, at the time of the film, Steven Spielberg said he drew inspiration from the song "When You Wish Upon a Star." The score features a brief moment based on the song's music. It uh, can be heard during the closing scene. Also, if you remember in the film, Roy talks about taking his family, uh, wanting to see Pinocchio, uh, which oh. the film of the song was from. Cool. Oh, it's right. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, either go, go see go, Pinocchio go, 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 yeah. or go bowling, I think it was. <laughs> Let me watch Pinocchio. He was getting really mad about it. It was yeah. like really odd. We're going to watch Pinocchio. We're going to watch Pinocchio. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the okay, mothership's appearance was eventually reused several times. In one episode of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, Masters an the alien universe. race called Bendari arrives at Eternia in a spaceship whose shape resembles the mothership. And in Uncle Fester's Quest, the Adams Family, in 1989, another alien race who abducts all the population of a city travels aboard a spaceship very similar to the mothership. I have not seen that episode. <laughs> okay. Which one? Oh, the Uncle Fester thing you just said. Uh, the Uncle Fester's Quest. Uncle Fester's Quest. Yeah, I've never heard that. That was uh, that was the movie, wasn't it? Uh, the Adams Family, uh, Uncle Fester's Quest in nineteen eighty nine. I do believe so. Yeah, I, Adams Family and the Adams Family Values. Uncle Fester was. I don't. I have no idea about the alien stuff. At you all. need to look that up. I need to look it up. I, NASA I, is said to have sent a twenty page letter to Spielberg telling him that releasing this film was dangerous. Both they and the U.S. Air Force refused to cooperate with the making of this film. Hmm. They. Yes. The uh, I remember it's like it's like oh yeah Independence Day as well I had the same problem where like as soon as they mentioned Area Fifty One, uh, it was like email like like nope we're not doing any situation with this film at all. No. Roy and Ronnie Neary could have been the inspiration to create the main characters of the X Files. Fox Mulder and Dana Scully, where Mulder is the believer and Scully is the skeptical. Uh, imitating Richard Dreyfuss and Terry Gar in this movie. That makes sense. I agree with that entirely. Oh, Uncle, Fester, Uncle Fester's Quest was a video game, not a that's movie. Oh, okay. That's that's why I was so confused. Like, you talking about a movie? I've never heard of Uncle Fester's Quest. You've never heard of Uncle Fester. Oh, I know Uncle Fester. I know like, yeah, Harold Lloyd and all kind of stuff. Good stuff. So, yeah. so uh, do you call him Harold Lloyd? Is that what you just called him? I say Harold Lloyd? No, it's Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> yeah. Harold Lloyd. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a... That goes all the way back. The, the movie I Robot, Will Smith. There's a whole scene where he explains how he got his injury. He's like, his name was Harold Lloyd, like the film star. <laughs> and then it got locked in my head that Christopher Lloyd and Harold Lloyd are the same name. So, Kyle, what, what's your take on Close Encounters of the Third Close Day? Encounters. You know, it's a it's a film that I enjoy watching once and appreciating that for that, um, for and appreciating it for its place in film history and all it did for um, science fiction films going forward. Um, that said, it's not like an enjoyable film to me to watch. I don't like. I don't get like a feel good, or I don't get like an emotion I crave over and over again when I watch this film multiple times. Um, it, and it kind of goes places where like I feel kind of lost until like the last thirty five minutes, kind of like what you were saying earlier, where it's just like it's just kind of 
statically kind of odd in a, in a fun way, uh, in an interesting enough way for like the book of the film. Then the last mid ending, he just goes off the aliens. I don't really agree with that as a, as a human being, um, <laughs> especially leaving your kids behind. Hey, hey, hey maybe don't abandon your family. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just put it out there, you know. But like he just, you know, some guys get abducted by aliens, other guys go for milk. Either way, they don't come back. <laughs> Sorry, uh, and uh, you know, so overall, like it's it's maybe not like a film that I personally find all that enjoyable, but I still appreciate it for what it does, and the practical effects, of course, are also really really great. So I think it's an excellent film, um, worth watching, especially for like you know, it deserves to be on that list of a thousand movies you see before you die, or the hundred movies before you see before you die. I think it deserves to be up there. Would you but consider it one of the top one hundred movies of all time? Yeah, probably not personally. If I ever had to make that list for myself, I probably wouldn't put it there. Um, in terms of film history, though, I think it, it does. Uh, you can make a solid case for what it does there just for pure film history's sake. So I think it deserves to be up there for, you know, globally, if you consider it for that, it's yes. But personally, I probably wouldn't put it in my top 100 if I ever got, like, down to actually making a top 100 list in my life. <laughs> so, yeah, that's where I kind of feel about it. Um, Jimbo, how do you think you feel about the film overall? Man, I feel like this be- is my first time watching it. Mm-hmm. Um it was a really hard watch at the beginning. Um, I was kind of intrigued at the beginning when they find the ship in the desert and the planes or what the airplanes or whatever. Yeah. Then when they find the ship in the desert, but then when the the abductions were the the sightings, I'll say, were pretty cool. Um, and then it just starts getting weird after the first night of the encounters, where they actually you know Roy sees the ships uh, and they they come around and then uh, Toby and his mom or whatever where they come around the corner and they see those three. And then the one little light, remember the little bitty thing? Yeah. It was like a red light floating. Uh, I was I was still into the movie then. Then after that, it just, he starts, it just goes off into a totally different direction with Roy just so obsessed with this shape that he's never seen, like the Devil's Tower thing that he keeps building. He doesn't know why. It's like he's making it in his mashed potatoes. He's making this, he goes and steals like the lady's fence next door, you know, out in the yard and throws it. He's like, yeah. I'll pay you for it, you know, chicken wire and all that. And he throws it into his, his like kitchen window. And just starts throwing rocks and, and everything in there. And he spilled this great big devil tower. And you're like, what? what is this? this guy is going insane. And then I think it's uh, Toby's mom uh, that sees. She's in a hotel room, I believe. And she sees it on TV. And I think he sees it at the same time. They end up calling each other or something. Yeah, but this time, Terry Gar said, we're leaving. We're, we're, I'm taking the sons. We're going to my mom's or whatever. Yeah. Um, so then the rest of the movie, it's him, her, and then... They're trying to get to Devil's Tower. Obviously, the army's got it roped off. And then somewhere along the way, this romantic... They must... Feels very really forced. It doesn't, it doesn't feel somebody. natural. They ended yeah. up kissing. And I'm like... I don't understand the... I didn't understand the plot of that movie to that. You it know has I mean? no natural progression to that point. No. It's just it's just the fact it's a man and a woman that exists to show clearly they should fall in love. They're together in this stressful right. moment. And so you know. when you when you get... And here's something else I didn't understand. Okay, so you get back up. They get to the top of the Devil's Tower, and they're they're obviously trying to communicate with the ship, right? Mm. Before the ship goes off, it does its own, uh, you know, symphony <laughs> by itself. And then the door opens, and uh, these people start walking out that have, I guess, supposedly have been abducted. You know, they got a checklist of these people that are missing. Yeah, shame off. So my 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 initial thought was. How do they know that these people were abducted, and how do they have all these printoffs of them, and how do they know that they're going to be brought back if they they're acting like this is the first time they've ever seen them? Yeah. So so to me that to me that says that they they may have been doing this longer than what they thought that they knew about, and if that's true, then why didn't they already have the Communication devices of the musical notes to telecommunicate with them already. Yeah, it's like a movie that's like too big and too small, where it has like a lot of questions that ask, but not enough questions that answers in a good, compelling way. Right. So like, it's like this movie is not flawless in a lot of respects, even though it set the stage for a lot of things. Uh, I think I'm going to go like I had this kind of thought as you were explaining to me. Everything kind of felt like this movie feels like almost like like. Like, Close Encounters of the Third Kind walked so the X-Files could run. <laughs> in a lot of ways, like, a lot of the things that were covered in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, X-Files did their own version of them um, that I feel like they actually did superior in many ways in the 90s, actually. So right. I think almost like X-Files did a superior version of, like, the long form of this And of this speaking movie. of X-Files, Kyle and I have tossed around the idea of covering each episode of the X-Files just because it was such a great show for when it was out, and it left a lot of things that people... 
um, talk about or want to know about, and they kind of they didn't tell you the whole thing, but they gave you enough to make you wonder in mm-hmm. a lot of those and about the government and stuff. Yeah. So we were still tossing around that idea. We still might cover it, but um, yeah. yeah, this movie is just. I'm glad I watched it once, but it's not one that I'm going to rush to and watch over and over and over again. If I want to watch an alien movie, I'll watch uh, Independence Day mm-hmm. or Signs or yeah. you know something yeah, like th- that. Th- th- this is a film that other films learned from and did better versions of in right. many core aspects and ideas. That special I really effects outstanding. Yeah, this, yeah. This, the music outstanding. Yeah, uh, and I'm not even saying the acting was bad. I think it was the script. Yeah, that was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, because you could have done... It, it didn't age well in the way you'd hope other movies do. You know, like It would have been more interesting to me to see Roy uh, have his kids kidnapped or yeah. abducted and Barry, uh, or uh, not Barry, uh, Toby abducted mm-hmm. and see uh, him, his wife, Terry Gar, and this other lady come together where maybe they could have reconciled their marriage uh, because their sons were missing, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I think that would have yeah. been a much better. That would film. Been a, that would have been a cleaner film, easier to follow. But to I'm not Steven Spielberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't write this movie. But yeah. I'm just saying, if I was to write it, that's how I would. I, I bet. Like, and also, like, I bet. Like, if Steven Spielberg were to, were to do this movie today, he'd probably do a lot more things well, like yeah, that. Now, my thing was, you know, I don't care if Roy gets vaporized in this movie. They made me feel no connection to Roy whatsoever. Yeah, yeah I yeah. don't care if he died on the side of the mountain. I don't care if the he, one guy that got the. Um, uh, pesticide dropped on him. Mm-hmm. You know, he was on the side of the mountain. Yeah. I don't care if he died. I don't care if the lady died. This, all I cared about was that little kid getting back to his mom. You know, yeah. I mean, that's the only thing I cared about. Mm-hmm. And wish they paid that off. But it was very beautifully done. But just, it's good for one watch. I don't think I'll visit again for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you have to appreciate it for what it brought to the movie industry. Yeah, we, so. we, we both appreciate it from a historical perspective. But like, it's not a film that you go to strictly to enjoy versus right. watching. I don't right. think, yeah. Um, so, uh, I think this episode's coming to a close, so next time, we will be discussing one of the greatest movies of all time, they say, Chinatown. Chinatown, Jack, right. was, That was also Jackie my Nicholson. first, that was also my first viewing of that, and you think this movie was weird, that one's got a, a deeper, thicker, meaningful plot. It's at least on, we're on point with the genre, I think. Right. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. So, with that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And Cut. Thank you.